prevent complications. Well, we don't prevent them in the moment, just like preeclampsia. So we got to go backwards. We got to go back to when these processes first start. If you can't make oxytocin receptors, you're not going to be able to attach oxytocin to the uterus. And that happens weeks before we actually go into labor. If we can't build our oxytocin receptors because we are vitamin A deficient or we are subclinically hypothyroid, well, again, we can give them Pitocin all day long. It's not going to do anything. There's no receptors for them to grab onto. Functional birth experience to me, the physiological birth experience to me is that the steps happened. Is, is the body functioning? Are the processes happening? Right? Is the mother able to gently go through that experience without having trauma. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Hi there, I'm Sarah Thompson. I'm a certified functional medicine practitioner who specializes in maternity care, and I'm also the author of the book, Functional Maternity. And today we're going to talk about preparing for the functional childbirth experience. What is the functional childbirth experience? So that's kind of a new term. Can you tell us a little bit about what a functional birth experience is? We talk a lot on our podcast about physiologic birth, but I get the sense that they're a little bit different. Yeah, the terms can be interchangeable. Absolutely. We're talking about what is the natural physiology of childbirth and how does that physiological response expand outside of just hormones that go into causing contractions? How does it affect the overall physiology of the body? And how does the physiology of of the body affect the birth experience? Is the term functional used in the same way it's used in functional medicine overall? Exactly. And how how is that? What is the meaning of functional medicine overall? So the, the meaning of functional medicine is the how does the body function, right? So the physiology, and how do those different functions play into one another? So versus just looking at what's the physiology of the ovaries and the uterus and how they function, we go into how do the adrenal glands also play into this reproductive response? How does the pituitary gland and the thyroid hormones also play into this physiological response? And then, of course, with functional medicine, one of our big focuses is diet and lifestyle. So how do those experiences also affect the physiological responses? Okay. So I think it would I think it would be safe to say that um, most of modern obstetrical and maternity care doesn't put a lot of uh, emphasis on the functional part of pregnancy and birth, do they? No, I mean they definitely understand the physiological side, but most of their their training and most of what they do is on the management and control of those physiological responses instead of the support of the natural physiological response. And childbirth is one of those great, great examples of that because physiologically the body is preparing for childbirth all the way back at 28 weeks. The body is already making changes to prepare the mother for the birth experience. And in conventional medicine, the birth experience is this small window in which we make changes to the physiology. But there's a whole lead up you know, 10 to 12 weeks of lead up of physiological changes in the maternal body that set this person up for birth success or birth complications. 
So what, what, what is that process where, where right before that process begins, what's going on and then yeah. what, what triggers the process to be, begin and prepare the body for birth? Yeah. The biggest trigger of all of this is the baby itself. So most people don't realize that the primary driver of all the hormonal changes in pregnancy is the actual baby, right? The, the fetal adrenal glands are 90% bigger in the womb than they are weeks after delivery. They immediately shrink after birth. And it's the fetal adrenal glands that produce majority of these hormones with the help of the placenta. So you can start to see that the fetal adrenal glands are producing these hormones as early as 16 to 18 weeks. But we see the biggest surge in these hormones starting at around 28 weeks. And the primary hormone that these fetal adrenal glands are producing is cortisol. Donna, I think of that as a stress hormone. I mean, it is a stress hormone, but what's the, I know it can also serve a purpose for us. Like we get a a flood of it in the morning. It helps to wake us up and make us feel energized in the morning. It's essential to function. What's the, what's the purpose of it at 28 weeks? What does it start to do in the body? So at 28 weeks, cortisol starts to send signals from the placenta to the mom and the mom's body starts to produce a little bit more cortisol. And we too have two different types of stress hormones. We have cortisol and we have cortisone. Right. Think of cortisol as our driver of life. It's there's a receptor for cortisol on literally every cell of the body, every uh, nerve cell, skin cell, cartilage cell has a receptor for cortisol and cortisol regulates neurotransmitters. It's been known to regulate things like peristalsis, heart rate, blood pressure, all of these different functions in the body. Then you have cortisone, which think hydrocortisone cream right? It's a natural anti-inflammatory. And everything about pregnancy and everything about childbirth is an inflammatory experience. And it's this natural inflammation to some degree that helps to trigger these little changes that we see. And from 28 weeks on, it's like a little stair step of change that happens. Hormones in pregnancy do this little increase, right? We see the steady increase in hormones throughout the beginning of pregnancy. And then at about 28 weeks, they literally skyrocket. And we see this almost doubling every week of these hormones, right? They peak at about 34 weeks. Certain ones start to come down like progesterone, cortisol tends to stay elevated. And we see these different changes as we lead to labor and delivery. But this all happens so much further back. And this cortisol that we're getting from the baby goes into the placenta, gets into the mother's bloodstream, and starts to make changes in her system to trigger these different changes in preparation for labor and delivery. One of the biggest changes is changes to the cervix. So at the onset of pregnancy, the collagen fibers of the cervix, the cervix is just one big old chunk of collagen, right? Just like that to be your nose and your ears, it's a collagen base. The fibers of the cervix wind themselves together to become like this nested ball of intertangled fibers because we do not want those fibers to come apart. What we see in microscopic studies of the cervix is that cortisol stimulates a remodeling of the cervix. And this happens all the way at the beginning of the third trimester and sometimes at the end of the second trimester. And what we start to see is an unwinding of these cervical fibers. So then all that they can become parallel. We don't want them soft. We still want them hard. We want them firm. But we have to start making that change so that we don't get to 40 weeks and we have a couple fibers that are still intertwined. If we have that, that's going to be harder to open that cervix. That's amazing. Isn't that cool? What Before we continue, what is this the science of? Who knows this? <laughs> what scientists have discovered this? And why are they studied this? What field of work? What field of scientists 
have done this work? What is this called? This study? It's it's study of obstetrics. How do you know it? It's it's out there by finding the research by looking for it. So interesting. Why are we never, why are we never talking about influencing cortisol levels in late pregnancy as a method for induction? Let's say I have seen a couple of clinical trials pop up recently in which they are looking to uh, change cortisol levels, but mostly because I think cortisol is such a, a hormone that's not as understood in pregnancy. We don't do a ton of research on cortisol outside of a couple different fields. And, and, it's, and it's an interplay. There's not just one hormone or not just one system that triggers all of this, right? So if we go back to the cortisol side, right, we've got this little remodeling thing that's happening. Some of this cortisol is actually going back to baby to stimulate the maturation of the lungs and the digestive system, right? And then oh the more gosh. mature baby gets, the more cortisol and all these hormones get produced and then more cortisol from mom gets to baby and we see this lovely cycle happening. And in the end, we I think we're all pretty aware at this point that it's the maturation of the lungs themselves that stimulates the onset of the active labor process. And so it's all actually starting way back at this 28-week mark. The other hormone that's getting produced by the baby is DHEA. And the placenta converts DHEA into estrogen. Estrogen levels also skyrocket starting at that 28-week mark. Estrogens are responsible for the production of things like prostaglandins. Right? I think we're all familiar with prostaglandins because that's one of our induction methods. Why don't you explain prostaglandins anyway? You never know who's listening, who's newly pregnant. Let's just explain everything. Yeah. So there's different types of prostaglandins. The ones I'm talking about in in this this context are what we call series two prostaglandins. So we have PGF2 alpha, PGE2s. And there's these different types of prostaglandins that do different things. We've also got our one series prostaglandins um, that work on the coagulation aspect of things uh, like prostacyclines. Thrombox and A2. There's all these other different prostaglandins that get produced closer to the onset of delivery so that we can clot, right? We don't want to bleed out, right? There's a balance that has to happen. Prostaglandins are, have, have a bad reputation because they're associated with inflammation. They are also made from a compound called arachidonic acid. Arachidonic acid is made from omega-6 fatty acids in the diet. Right. So we have a kind of a fear of omega-6 fatty acids in our world, but we need them. We absolutely need them for the labor and delivery experience. I thought they were, I always think of them as a good thing because they are what ripens the cervix. Yes. But you're saying that it's not the only function in, in this exactly. biofeedback system between the body, the placenta, the baby. Um, you're saying the prostaglandins are also responsible for allowing coagulation to prevent postpartum hemorrhage. Yes, and more. So we'll keep going down this journey because prostaglandins do so much. So when we're talking about those prostaglandins, so going back to that cervical fiber aspect, right? While uh, cortisol is making those fibers more parallel as we kind of stair-step our way each week with a little bit more progression in the maturation of our baby and a little bit more hormone production, we need those prostaglandins to soften the fibers. We need to give them flexibility. Again, we still don't want them to open. But we need to start making them softer and squishier so that when we ask them to open, we can do that. The other thing we start to see is that 
estrogen, prostaglandins, these hormones coming together start to make oxytocin production on the inside of the uterus. Now we're getting the Braxton Hicks contractions, right? And when we get this oxytocin production on the inside of the uterus, it stimulates the development of prostaglandin receptors in the cervix itself. And so now we've got another cyclical action happening down here, right? Between oxytocin and these little minute contractions and prostaglandin production and estrogen, who stimulates the actual genetic expression of your oxytocin. Estrogen does other things in the body during this time frame too. Upregulates magnesium transport and absorption because we need that to make things like nitric oxide, right? Nitric oxide is a vasodilator and a vasorelaxant. And we see studies that talk about low estrogen levels uh, and low, uh, low nitric oxide production being associated with preeclampsia with later on in pregnancy. Uh, we also need magnesium to help with the transport of thyroid hormones which we see that there is upwards of a 50% increase in the need for thyroid hormones in the third trimester. You have to have thyroid hormones to make oxytocin receptors. It seems like estrogen is a really important variable mm -hmm. in this picture. Oh, yeah. um, and thyroid clearly is also very important. So two things to think about maybe in preconception or in pregnancy is, you know, like how does one control their healthy estrogen? Is that just by having a healthy liver it's not her estrogen. It's not her. It's the placenta. It's the placental protection. The placenta of makes estrogen. the estrogen. It's not okay. mom's estrogen. The S the placenta is taking the DHEA that the baby is producing and converting it into estrogen. So the more mature baby gets, thanks to those cortisol levels, the more DHEA their adrenal glands produce, and the more estrogen the placenta can produce. It's just so converting it. So there's really, you don't really have a lot of control over that. Not over the estrogen the side as much. What goes into making those happy, healthy estrogen levels is a happy, healthy placenta. So things like reducing oxidative stress in the placenta, lots of antioxidants. The, the placenta itself is prone to oxidative stress conditions. And for those who aren't familiar with oxidative stress as a term, it's, it's like our medical term for pollution, internal biological pollution. And every time we do a function in the body, we make a hormone, we make a neurotransmitter, we burn calories for energy, we make pollution. Every single day, you and I, we're all making pollution. And in pregnancy, it's a very polluting process. And we'll see that there is an upregulation in the production of certain antioxidants in the body, CoQ10, glutathione, superoxydismutase. These are found very heavily in the placenta. And protecting the placenta is often protecting it by removing the, the pollution. Because, you know, if you, for those of us, you know, if you go and live in the country versus living in L.A., the pollution aspect, right? We see differences in people's health outcomes based off of some of those things because pollution is toxic. Our own natural pollution that we produce every single day can become toxic. And pregnancy is prone to high rates of pollution because the whole process is very inflammatory. I really want to get back to this, um, this process you were describing. It's genuinely fascinating. And I, I was already forming the big takeaway in my own mind that this is such an incredibly complex process. I mean, I think humans have barely scratched the surface on really understanding and having a reverence for pregnancy and childbirth, but it's just so interesting how every little action in the body is critical for the subsequent action. 
So my thinking is if any of this is disrupted, it's going to have downstream effects. Absolutely. And so that that's where this is really getting interesting because we always view it as isolated, like you're pregnant and then suddenly you're in labor. Boom. It, that's not at all what's going on. So let me uh, interject one question before you proceed with explaining that. Maybe it's too big of a question for this point of the conversation. How does one most easily remove toxins and pollutants? Yeah, that's what everyone's going to be thinking about now. Sure. And again, a lot of it is happening. The placental development side of things is happening really early in pregnancy. The trophoblast cells that become the placenta, you have a placenta by 10 weeks. Right. That placenta is already functioning and doing things by 10 weeks. And you'll actually see some cases of very, very early onset preeclampsia, like 12 week preeclampsia cases. And that placenta support really begins preconceptionally. So the best thing you can do is work on reducing this oxidative stress preconceptionally, making sure you're getting antioxidants in the diet, doing your best to avoid pollutants as best you can. There's a lot that goes into making superoxide dismutase, glutathione, some people with, you know, certain methylation and, and, you know, methionine cycling issues can't make as much glutathione. There's a genetic component there. So really, things like that help reducing your mental stress load, right? Uh, Sleep is probably the most important thing that you can do. Sleep is when we detox. Sleep is when we go and we clean out this pollution. And there are so many studies that talk about sleep deprivation, sleep apnea, sleep breathing problems, insomnia patterns with more complications in pregnancy associated with this internal pollution. And we don't just mean then difficulty sleeping in pregnancy, insomnia of pregnancy. You're talking about sleep problems leading up to pregnancy. So three mm-hmm. months, six months, a year before conceiving, yeah. making sure that you have really healthy, good sleep habits Absolutely. so yeah. that you have the healthiest development of a placenta. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are the best things. Once you are pregnant, it does get harder. I mean, everything is so rapidly changing in pregnancy. and it's. It's one of the things I tell the the midwives and people who I consult with. I, I, I consult with midwives and physicians all over. And it's one of the things we talk about a lot is 90% of the time when we get these patients, we're already in acute crisis management, right? We don't have time for prevention for a lot of these people. And it becomes using sometimes antioxidant therapy. And there's some really cool studies out there that, are, that where, where researchers are looking into using these innate antioxidants in supplemental form and, and medication form to prevent and treat these complications. Like alpha-lipoic acid is one that we've seen a lot of research on. And you know so far, safety studies on that look good. Um, but you'll see studies talking about using alpha-lipoic acid to treat preeclampsia and to treat uh, gestational diabetes and and preterm labor, uh, subchorionic hematomas, all these different complications that we see throughout pregnancy by giving this interesting um, antioxidant. Right? Same thing with uh, N-acetylcysteine. Right? There's a little bit of research coming out on N-acetylcysteine in the prevention and the treatment of some of these conditions. And again, these are all early studies, but it's promising. And it's based off of understanding this unique functional physiology of of the pregnancy experience. Are these in pill form or are we talking very high doses in liquid intravenous form? Um, The research so far is in pill form that I've seen. 
Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com. And cherry on top, you guys can use code DOWNTOBIRTH at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sitz bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E dot com, and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. So is that something that you would recommend that women looking to conceive are are taking these supplements in advance of pregnancy? Depending on the individual, I don't, I don't believe in generic supplementation. Uh, The one that has the most research backing on it right now is CoQ10. Uh, We see a lot of research in the prevention of preeclampsia and the support of mostly like advanced maternal age moms, uh, simply because we see that CoQ10 levels drop as we age and supplementing with that has been shown to help uh, support the body, the cardiovascular system and the metabolic systems. 
So that may be one explanation for the higher rate sometimes of hypertensive mm-hmm. issues in pregnancy. Yeah. As we age, we are more prone to oxidative stress because oxidative stress is a part of aging. We naturally produce less of our innate antioxidants. So those glutathione's, superoxide dismutase, CoQ10. And so we're already set up for slightly more inflammation as we age in the pregnancy experience. Where did we leave off on that? Um, I'd love to get back to yes. what you were saying about the physiologic so, process. I, know. I have to, I write my notes as I go. So I have my lovely little, little diagram to keep us on track. Okay. So estrogen is kind of where I had left off talking about the upregulation of magnesium and then how some things like the magnesium helps with transporting thyroid hormones. Estrogen is also responsible for the the making of the oxytocin side and the oxytocin receptors. We see the that being a big part. The other interesting thing we see estrogen doing is it makes what we call gap junctions. Gap junctions are connections to the nerve cells within the endometrial and, and, and the, the uterine tissues because we need a lot of neurotransmitter function for the actual birth experience. And we have to set the foundation for that. We have to make all these little connections as we build up that staircase so that when somebody goes into labor, everything's in place. We've got all the nerves. We can send those signals. Uh, at In labor, we have all sorts of different, different neurological signals that are happening. Everything from the communication to control the actual contractions, right? Which we need more magnesium and calcium and all those great electrolytes to make that happen. But we also need to be able to do things like make the catecholamine surge, right? The catecholamine surge is huge. And at what point does that show up? The catecholamine surge? When do we need catecholamines to show up? Yes, because um, it's always been my understanding that we don't want catecholamines while we're dilating. Mm -hmm. So when do we, and then of course, uh, it's a different experience once she's 10 centimeters and we need that energy to get out. Is that the point we're talking about? Yeah. So if we look at, again, now we can go into the natural physiology of childbirth, right? So let's just say everything happened the way it's supposed to. We had all the cervical changes, all these great things, prostaglandins made everything nice and soft and squishy. Well, there's this really cool thing that happens at the onset of labor, and it has to do with our cool chemical nobody ever talks about called hyaluronic acid. Do you ever guys hear about hyaluronic acid in labor and delivery? No, no just, I just, use, just use it for the face. Yeah, we use it on our skin, <laughs> right? To prevent wrinkles. Hyaluronic it acid. It plumps your skin. It, it plumps does? your skin. Yes. It's, it, a, in theory. it's a, like a liquid? What is it? In theory. Yeah. It's uh. a carbohydrate-based chemical that is, it's a lubricant of skin and cartilage is what it is. And what it tends to do is basically suspend, suspend fluid and animation in a way in between in between cells to give them plumpness, right? It is an extremely important part of the labor and delivery experience. So remember, we went back, we made our we made our structure of the cervix parallel, we gave it flexibility, and now we're going to efface it. And we efface it with hyaluronic acid. Hyaluronic acid comes in and fills the interstitial spaces oh, look, we're getting some squishy factor, right? And then it starts to stretch. And then, oh my gosh, now we're super squishy in there because we put so much fluid in it. Can you talk about effacement for those who don't understand effacement? Yeah, it's so funny, effacement. My, my my niece listened to, listens to this podcast. She's in her early 20s and she's nowhere near ready for this. Yeah. And she, she's like, I love when you guys stop and explain things. And I know we have followers who do too. So forgive yeah. me for inter- interjecting with that, but please explain effacement. Yeah, effacement is literally this. It's the softening of the cervix. 
And isn't it the thinning or is it just the softening? It's a thinning as well. But in order to thin, it has to say it's the softening. And then it kind of, if I speak visually, you know, like as we're plumping up those fibers, it softens and squishes and then it like narrows out. So the, the tissue around the cervix is thick and defacement is the process in late pregnancy um, in which that thick tissue around mm-hmm. the cervix becomes ultimately paper thin. And then yes. it's in a position to draw back easily as we're dilating. Yeah. Then there's less yes. tissue for the uterus to draw back. But it's not really the tissue around the cervix. It is the cervix. It is what is coming. The your, cervix your, is the tissue, right? Your the, cervix is like yes. a tube. Think of it yes. as like a tube. It's it's long. It's usually several centimeters, four centimeters long. It's long. And then the effacement is the shrinking of that, the thinning of it out. Mm-hmm. The tissue is, the structure is literally changing, right? That's what we're seeing here is the structure literally changed. So this is we what you meant earlier it. when you said it's changing the structure of the cervix. That is what you meant. Okay. Yes. And the actual effacement part we see is literally the flooding of this hyaluronic acid into the cervix to make it gooey, right? We're melting the cervix by adding fluid to it. Which makes it easier to dilate later, to the, get that tissue yes. to drop back into the uterus later. That's why yes. this step is happening. Yes. Which really gives you a respect for allowing labor to start on its own. Because mm-hmm. when you take a woman who hasn't been through that process and we flood her with Pitocin, you can yeah. start to imagine all the risks involved. The body well, just yeah. isn't there yet. Those steps haven't taken place yet. Well, that's well, why they a... use prostaglandins and cervical dilators and right mm-hmm. nerves. So you have right. to, you can't just go in and right. start contracting the uterus with a without a what they refer to as a ripened cervix, which, but then and you, I forget what year the study was, but there was a study that compared induction methods. And it's when we started moving away from just using Pitocin for inductions yeah, and adding that. in the cervical ripening agent, there was a really cool component of that study where they used hyaluronic acid for labor induction. And they injected the cervix with hyaluronic acid every three hours, I'm pretty sure is what that was. And it had better labor outcomes with less complications, less cesarean delivery, but it was deemed unusable because nobody liked being injected in the cervix. It's a horrible method of delivery, right? Couldn't, but really- you deliver it some other way? Couldn't you just use like a suppository? Well, one of the things we see is that, well, and that'd be a good, I, I mean, I think there's some other studies that are coming out, are there like clinical trials looking into that now. And Prior to that, there was a lot of research basically going into these different ways we can we can try to change hyaluronic acid. How do we support natural hyaluronic acid and understanding the physiology of hyaluronic acid in these scenarios? But you see, again, in this physiology, right before the onset of labor, you can measure hyaluronidase in the bloodstream and it just skyrockets literally right before the onset of delivery. And then drops because the body fills the bloodstream with it. And then it all goes down to the tissues. And this is exactly the kind of thing I was thinking about because of the conversation you're bringing here, because even if, okay, so they used to just induce women with Pitocin until they said, that's a terrible and dangerous idea. So then they said, well, let's just go the step before and start her off with prostaglandins. Mm -hmm. And now the Pitocin won't have the same risk. But I can't help but wonder because of this conversation, well, if you just start her with prostaglandins, you're you're still interrupting the process of what was happening before. Mm-hmm. And as my mind was um, considering that, you said, well, yeah, it's not just happening at the cervix. It floods her whole bloodstream. So when we do say, oh, well, we're ahead of this, we're now going to inject it into her cervix. 
you're still, you're still intervening in the process that must happen throughout her entire body, her brain, her placenta and her baby. You can't just like, you know, stick this process with, Oh, here's an injection. Now we're good. This really gives us such an appreciation for to every extent possible, not interrupting this process because you're, you're what led up to it. I don't know. I I'm, it just gives me an appreciation for not interrupting this process more than ever. Especially because it really is initiated by the baby. So just injecting the mother with something is in, in a baby who's not ready. Yeah. That's exactly. really overriding the system. But what you said about the, it was so interesting about it coming from the lungs and the cortisol, because we know that, you know, we, we do give moms cortisol to, Exactly. To um, rapidly develop the infant lungs in preterm labor. So we know it works. Yeah. So it, I, I just wonder if that was ever used in like post-dates pregnancy, somebody who's 42 weeks and hasn't gone into labor and, you know, they're talking about induction now and, and C-section. Have we never tried the cortisol method? Finding the perfect pregnancy and breastfeeding bra is no easy task. Your search is now over. Meet Davin and Adley, a mother-owned pumping, nursing, and maternity bra company with a unique, comfortable, and stylish cropped cami. This item is perfect to wear all day long from day one of your pregnancy right through the end of your breastfeeding journey and probably beyond. The Amelia cami makes pumping and breastfeeding easy while looking and feeling good on your body. It works seamlessly for both wearable pumps and flange pumps, and you can breastfeed in it. It also has a beautiful stretch lace back. You can sleep in it, dress up in it, go out in it, whatever you want to do in it. And trust us, the quality in this item and all of their items are top notch. They're soft, durable, and attractive. These bras will truly go the distance. Davin and Adley carry a gorgeous selection of maternity and nursing wear, and they have an innovative one-piece breast pad that we've never seen anywhere else. So no more losing those solo breast pads, ladies. Go ahead and check out the full collection of maternity and nursing items at davinandadley.com and use your promo code DOWNTOBIRTH to save 15%. All right, breastfeeding moms, do you want to know one of our all-time favorite items for your nursing journey? If you know us, you probably could guess it. Yep, it's the Silverette Nursing Cup. These little nipple heroes not only protect, but also heal because they're made of real silver. It is naturally antimicrobial, antifungal, and anti-inflammatory. These little cups will be your best friend in the early sensitive weeks of breastfeeding your baby. And our favorite part is they last literally forever. You can pass them on just like you would a favorite piece of jewelry. Head on over to silverettusa.com and use promo code DOWNTOBIRTH to save 15%. I haven't seen any studies on it, but that's not to say somebody hasn't done them, right? Maybe there, maybe there are studies and I just haven't seen them. I have never heard anything about them using it outside of using it with preterm deliveries, knowing that we need to try to get baby's lungs to mature a little faster. Yeah. Yeah. Just an interesting thought. Yeah, it is an interesting thought. And that's, those are the type of conversations that I hope to elicit in the people who do the research, right? Let's look into this. Why are we not looking into this? How do we use this physiology? earlier than acute crisis management in the actual labor and delivery experience. Because by the time we get there, sometimes it's too late, right? These processes take weeks, months, 
to do if we allow natural physiology to do its job. And, you know, my job, I feel like as a provider of maternity care is to help my clients hug their physiology throughout their pregnancy experience so that we can encourage the functional birth experience, right? The physiological birth aspect. How do we encourage that later starting now? How do we prevent complications? Well, we don't prevent them in the moment, just like preeclampsia. Prevention happens preconceptionally, right? How do we prevent anything in a childbirth experience? We got to go backwards. We got to go back to when these processes first start. And that's the beginning of the third trimester. And throughout the third trimester, you know, there's there's these great studies that talk about things like subclinical hypothyroidism and poor labor and delivery outcomes because thyroid hormone is so important for things like beta carotene conversion to retinol and retinol is important for how you make and use your oxytocin receptors. If you can't make oxytocin receptors, you're not going to be able to attach oxytocin to the uterus. And that happens weeks before we actually go into labor. And I don't know if you're familiar with the study, the Consortium of Safe Labor. Great study done. It was done between 2002, 2008. And it was, it was done by 12 different centers, 19 hospitals. They did over 220,000 births in this study. And they were looking at how do we create safe labor? How do we affect the labor and delivery outcomes? And one of the big takeaways from this had to do with this idea of subclinical hypothyroidism being an associated factor with some of these labor and delivery outcome um, complications. And what they found was subclinical hypo, no, subclinical hypothyroidism. Let's, let's talk about that for a hot second, right? We're not talking clinical. We're not talking with the people with a TSH of four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. We're talking people with a, a TSH level of 2.5 to three and a, just over that, right? That's what, what is still considered normal when you normal. When yeah. You unless your report. Exactly. Unless you're familiar with the recommendations of the Endocrine Society and the American Thyroid right. Association, right. who say a TSH over 2.5 or two or three uh, in pregnancy is not OK. And it's based off of these interesting studies we've seen where we see more complications in women with a TSH greater than three, even if it's within the normal ranges. But what they found was that women who had these subclinical hypothyroidism patterns had lower odds of spontaneous labor, higher rates of induction, higher diagnosis of failure to progress in labor, higher C-section rates, and higher hemorrhaging rates, right? There was another study in 2019 that found that people with subclinical hypothyroidism had a 38.8% chance of hemorrhaging. Wow. And this has to do a lot with this natural physiology as we lead up to that labor and delivery experience, building the oxytocin receptors, right? If we can't build our oxytocin receptors because we are vitamin A deficient or we are subclinically hypothyroid, well, again, we can give them Pitocin all day long. It's not going to do anything. There's no receptors for them to grab onto. Oh, it'll do something. It just yeah. won't get labor going. <laughs> I don't um, think that TSH is even a part of the standard obstetric panel, and it's certainly not at 28 weeks. No, it's So not. nobody's even looking at this. No, Nobody's very been. rarely do they get run. Most people who have had their thyroid uh, diagnosis in pregnancy, it's through IVF or fertility clinics. The reproductive endocrinologists uh, do a lot of thyroid testing prior to transfers, prior to IUIs, because we see this pattern associated with uh, recurrent miscarriages. Yeah. So as we get to like this progression of labor and delivery, you know, it's all stair-stepping and we have thresholds in these hormones. You hit a threshold in cortisol and we see this tr trigger. You see it at a threshold in estrogen and we see these triggers. 
you hit a threshold in the prostaglandins. It's the prostaglandins, so it's PGF2-alpha specifically, that triggers this hyaluronic acid production, okay? And then with that hyaluronic acid, we see, you know, like I was saying, the effacement. With cortisol, like we were saying before, it triggers the maturation of the lungs. As babies grow their lungs and they breathe the amniotic fluid, they produce these chemicals called surfactants. And surfactants are super inflammatory. And I always joke, it's like, you know, we've all gotten soap in our eye, right? These surfactants are like soapy little chemicals that irritate the inside of the uterus and the placenta. And eventually it gets so irritating and so toxic in there that the placenta signals the brain to produce oxytocin, the reject, the ejection reflex, right? This baby's too toxic. We have to get it out of here. It's becoming dangerously toxic at this point. That's so we get how labor is supposed to begin with this process. Is that really, is it's that really, really it? Yes. The poison out. Bonkers. <laughs> I can't believe yeah. that. So the, it's a, the baby or they, it starts producing essentially toxins and then, then the oxytocin is yeah. produced to eject everything. That's why we say everything in labor and delivery, the whole process is highly inflammatory. Mm -hmm. There's a 500% increase in cortisol production in pregnancy, 500% in the labor and delivery experience, right? In birth itself, there's a 50% increase in norepinephrine and a one or another 500% increase in adrenaline. It's stressful, right? So let's say the brain produces oxytocin, oxytocin comes down and binds to the receptors. Well, let's go back to oxytocin binding aspects. In order for oxytocin to bind to the receptor, let's just say we made all the receptors we were supposed to because we had sixfold the amount of vitamin A in our diet that we were supposed to have in the third trimester to do that. For oxytocin to bind to its receptor, you have to have magnesium. And most people have such a deficiency, right? Yeah. 60% of Americans aren't consuming the minimums. Of both. There's no vitamin A and magnesium. Well, yeah. It's 50% for vitamin A, 60% for magnesium as of, what was it, the 2016 national health report. I'm sure it's gotten different at this point. We've It's been a couple of years, but they haven't updated it. Um, and so we have to have that magnesium to bind to that aspect. Once we get that, oxytocin triggers more prostaglandin production, which then triggers that hyaluronic acid aspect. So it becomes this lovely cycle. And the more contractions we put baby's head down, and then eventually we have a lovely baby, right? And we could spend probably another 30 minutes going over the physiological aspect of what happens once we get that initiation. But to me, it's it's the prep work, right? If we can do all this prep work, then everything that happens in that physiological birth experience is functional. It's doing what it's supposed to do the way nature intended it. That's the goal. And when we say you have a functional birth experience, it doesn't mean you have a three-hour birth and you know you push for two, two minutes. Like that's not necessarily functional for everybody. Functional birth experience to me, the physiological birth experience to me is that the steps happened the way they were supposed to. We have somebody else involved here, right? There's a whole other person going through this experience and they are also affecting this, right? Um, to where if baby stays high, we might we might not get baby to come down as, as quickly as we should. And that's okay. That's still physiologically normal, right? Is, is the body functioning? Are the processes happening, right? Is the mother able to gently go through that experience without having trauma, right? There's all these different things that go into physiological functional birth. And somebody's functional birth may be an eight-hour birth, and somebody else's functional birth may be a 24-hour birth. And that's okay. And and just as Cynthia said a little while ago, anytime we intervene in this process, we are 
interfering with the body's ability to go through this functional process. And we don't know how much we're interfering with that. We don't know how, how off course we're taking the natural process, even, even minimal interventions. Yeah. And it affects babies, right? We don't think of these things necessarily as interventions as always making changes to the baby because baby comes out, right? But the catecholamine surge is a big example of that. That catecholamine surge happens after we've gone through transition and right before we push a baby out. And the catecholamine surge is that big surge in adrenaline that I was talking about, that 500%. Oh, and you know, you guys, you guys have been to births. The fetal ejection reflex. Yeah. Well, there's, yes. And so what you'll see is that catecholamine surge gets to the baby and that baby needs that to handle that big push through the birth canal and take that big first breath, right? They need those hormones. They need that adrenaline. Because it's protective. It's It's protective protective of them. It's protective. And again, I could go into a whole, you know, this is what happens at each step, you know, and everybody's progression in that physiological process of birth is very different. Um, I use a Grand Canyon analogy for that because I hiked the Grand Canyon a few years ago and I remember getting to the top and going like, oh my God, that was just like having a baby. Everything <laughs> about that was like having a baby. Did you ever Physically, have a baby? I have two. I have two. And it was I just like having babies. a baby? Yeah. It was just, I, I hiked the trail with my mom and I remember at one point we looked at each other and like, I feel like I'm, I'm giving birth again. Like this is just <laughs> mentally and physically, the all of the emotions are there, Right. Yeah. And uh, it was, it's become my analogy. The, 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 the relief at the end is really something I think every woman understands. Absolutely. It's kind of like, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's the pre, the pregame, you know, how do we, how do we hug this? How okay. do we hug this physiology? Right. By hugging it, we're, we're supporting those natural functions. We have to support that natural functions as practitioners. Our job is to help our clients through that by, by making sure we, 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 we find if there's any issues along the way addressing things like stress responses, right? Are, are you sleeping? Like if you're, if you're somebody out there listening right now, what's your sleep like, right? Are we supporting our cortisol levels? If you're having insomnia, maybe you're, you're, there is a little bit more inflammation than there should be, or you're not managing that inflammation correctly, right? Antioxidants become a big part of preventing things like preterm labor. We also need to make sure we're hitting up some of these nutrients that nobody ever talks about, things like vitamin A, Six-fold increase in the need for vitamin A in the third trimester. And that goes into mostly oxytocin receptor and oxytocin formation. Making sure you're eating a balanced diet, right? Hyaluronic acid is a carbohydrate-based. You have to have carbohydrates in order to make hyaluronic acid. So balanced diets, right? Reducing and managing stress as best we can. Those are things that we can do in that preconception phase in order to support these systems. And as practitioners, I feel like our job is to help guide our clients through this process. And that's one of the things that I love to do. I know it's one of the things that you guys are passionate about. And I'm sure there's a lot of midwives out there who are also very passionate about supporting their clients through this process. And part of making the change is all of us coming together to vocalize and to share this knowledge. And it's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I think everybody needs to know that this is a process that needs a hug. And then for those who want to learn more about this process, chapter 12 of my book goes into this in so much more detail. And then I have a download off of my website that is basically chapter 12 expanded that goes into even more of this. And it's a patient guide. So it's designed for patients 
Um, they'll walk them through this process and then show them nutritionally and, and lifestyle what they can do at home to support this process. There is an element of control. This is this is something that we can encourage. We have we have the potential to change pregnancy and childbirth outcomes by focusing on how the body functions, how childbirth functions, and diet and lifestyle. And with the right knowledge, with the education, you have the potential to create a beautiful birth experience. Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. You can reach us at Down to Birth Show on Instagram or email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live, online, serving women and couples everywhere. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. There were so many chapters in my book that my publisher was like, so we got to take some stuff out. I was like, no, why? I don't want to do that. Like, I'll be the judge of that. I know what needs to come out. You know, in the 80s, they used to cut all the good songs down to like three minutes, no matter what the song was. And it must have been so frustrating to musicians, like taking out whole sections of their song. Well, because the public just wants it three minutes long. Yeah. That's not and the then song you've got I've Queen created. coming in there <laughs> with the Stephen <laughs> Queen in a rap city going, oh, I don't right. think so. I'm going to do what I want. <laughs>